since our last episode, my apologies. It's been a hectic time at UCLA as we finished our seventh week of the quarter. I've been trying to keep up with teaching classes, going to visit my students in their classrooms, and giving feedback on papers. We are now on vacation and we have a week, and I'm very grateful for it because it gives us time to take a breath and slow down. Follows a time when the days grow shorter, it gets colder outside, and we move inward. It's a good time to be reflective, acknowledge change, growth, and also develop a vision of what's to come. In the spirit of symbolism of fall, today's episode is an interview with Marco Land. Marco shares their educational journey of becoming a teacher, training to be a teacher during the COVID-19 lockdown, and the challenges they faced during the first year of teaching full-time, and offers advice to folks who are entering the teaching profession during these challenging times. I hope you enjoy. So welcome, Marco. Thank you again for joining us here today. Thanks so much, Eduardo. I'm glad to be here. I'm really, um, really excited to to talk to you, just, um, you know, not only just because we know each other, but also because I, I think your experiences um, mirror um, what a lot of people either have been feeling or have been experiencing as they uh, are teaching uh, under under the current conditions and climate. Um, and, and so today I wanted to just kind of start, if you could just maybe as a way of introducing yourself to come, um, share with us your story of where you grew up and, and what were some of the shap- um, factors that shaped uh, and influenced you to become a teacher? So again, everybody, my name is Marco Landon. Um, I grew up in the Bay Area, specifically a small city named San Leandro. Um, for those who don't know where the Bay Area is, it's kind of tucked away near the San Francisco area, the Oakland area. And I just kind of lived over there up until I was 18 before I moved down to school in San Diego. Um, but in the Bay Area, that was kind of my first vantage point of when I first began understanding like what education was really about, why people really valued education, and why my family always hammered in like schooling and knowledge is the most important thing you can ever get in your lifetime. I think kind of as I grew up, I didn't really have any specific connections to school other than the fact that my family just told me, you got to go to school, you got to get good grades, you got to learn something and you got to be able to go to college. I think like that kind of rhetoric wasn't very convincing to me up until I was a junior in high school. Um, I just kind of went through the motions of just going to school, just getting good grades, just kind of doing whatever the heck I needed to do just to kind of move forward. Uh, Why do you think that was in terms of that you didn't, feel a connection to school. Yeah, I think the lack of connection had to do with things just didn't seem so connected or interesting to me. I know as I kind of grew up, I was taking just your general classes, English. I enjoyed reading, but I didn't see it being applied anywhere. Um, Biology, chemistry, they were cool, but I never could see myself doing it for the long term. And I did take history, like world history, but I just didn't have stable teachers. So I didn't really see a connection. School didn't feel like anything, but just the thing I had to do um, up until junior year. 
Um, I met this really phenomenal, really amazing teacher. We'll just call him Mr. K. Um, and he was also like an Asian American teacher. Um, he was Japanese American. And that was the first kind of time I've had a male Asian American teacher teaching something that wasn't so technical or sciencey. Um, when he was teaching U.S. history, he, I remember very vividly, like he would start, he started the very first day of the class um, reciting something out of the matrix, um, giving everybody a hot tamale and explaining like, this isn't your typical history class. We don't just take out a history book and we don't just read and do comprehension questions. That's, that's not learning. He would explain a little bit like, this is what we're going to go over. Some of the things in here is going to make you uncomfortable. And some of these things is going to make it so that you're going to be looking at your life completely different from here on out. And you can decide whether you're not, you want to take this on or you can decide that you'd rather just stay sleeping. And so at the very end of that kind of small lecture, he gave everybody the hot tamale and said, well, you get to decide right now. Like, do you want to take the red pill? And do you want to wake up from the matrix? Or do you want to just reject it and stay sleeping? To give some more context, back in high school, I went to public school my entire life up until the point of 10th grade. Uh, 10th grade, then I moved to a charter school system. Um, and it's a pretty big charter school system. I'm not going to name it for the purposes of privacy on there. But this charter school system is a well-known um, and I went there not because my family wanted me to go or any sort of influences, but another identity aspect of it is that I'm queer or gay specifically. And at the time when I was in ninth grade, just kind of things kind of happened and it wasn't as socially acceptable to be queer. And there was just kind of a lot of like, um, I wouldn't say bullying, but it wasn't accepted. And so when people kind of found out at the time that I was bisexual or queer, I just kind of felt uneasy and I took it upon myself to kind of move schools. And so mm. after when I moved schools into this charter school system, I've seen kind of like night and day of what like a public school is and what a charter school is. Things that I didn't have in my public school system, I had in my charter school system. The smaller classroom size, the resources and the technology, like that kind of all shaped my differences there. What are additional differences in this charter school system that you kind of begin to kind of think about? as you're looking at, at your experiences. And in yeah. what way do you think as a queer person were, was that also different in that space? Mm. Well, I would say for the first thing for the charter school system is that I started to see, I started to see a lot more, how do you say, control in the classroom. Mm. But I wouldn't say control like the students were respecting and wanting to, wanting to listen in a charter school system. I would say for my specific school, the teachers kind of felt like almost disciplinarians. Um, it felt like, and it's reminded me from this book from Bettina Love, like character education. I think in my entire experiences in my charter school, I was only able to take away so much technical and real life skills that could be applied into my day-to-day -day lives um, from my history classes and some of my English classes. Whereas the other classes, it felt like, yes, I was learning the subject at hand, but it was more so like that character education. Well, if you don't know, then you persevere. Then you have grit and you do all that X amount of things. Well, can't really persevere. Can't really have grit if I don't have the technical skills to be able to solve this equation or solve the, the math problem. I think I also found that in this charter school system, um, it was just five minute walking distance from my public high school. And so as I would kind of walk to school and see the different types of people that would go there, 
I would see back in the public school system, you would have people um, who would have to walk, bus, take at the time of the area, it was called BART, which is like the kind of like a metro system equivalent. Um, whereas in this charter school system, you would see similarly, but it was more disproportionate. You would have specifically at that time that it would be a lot of Asian students who would be dropped off and the East Asian specific Chinese students, which we had a high population of, and me myself being Chinese as well, I would see that the wealth distribution there was also really huge. You had students here who were from the higher income bracket of the Bay Area. And everybody who knows living in the Bay Area, it's not a very cheap place to live. We were only fortunate for my family to live there because we found the house before everything started booming. Um, and then I would also see different types of people who would equally take the bus, take bar, people who would have to go hours away just to come to school here. Um, and namely, they were not East Asian students. They were Black and Latinx students who had to come from different cities, coming all the way here just for this education because they knew that this charter school system not only was quote-unquote strong, but they also were able to get students into college. And that's something that I think charter schools, um, also the one that I work at currently, loves to talk about, that we push students to be able to get to college. We have strong access. We have strong partnerships. And that in itself, you know, I think is a strong thing, but I wonder like how far can getting students into college go when there isn't really that retention aspect or those real technical skills to be able to teach them to succeed in that new space when you're no longer physically there. Um, plus, I think in the aspect of me being a queer student there, I would say that it was more so kind of socially acceptable, but I think it was because you weren't really able to act out of line inside the school that I was, the charter school system. We didn't have any police on campus. We didn't have anything like that. But I believe that we didn't need to because the administration and the teachers kind of acted like a pseudo-police there. I wouldn't say that they were kind of a state-sanctioned violence. I would say that it was more so people knew how they had to act inside the school. You know, you're, you're, you're saying now you're at this charter school. You had this experience with, um, I think you said, Mr. K. Yes. So then... Why Why would you, or were you thinking about going to college? Were you not thinking about college? Were you thinking of, of doing something else? Yeah. So <laughs> believe it or not, when the very beginning, before I met Mr. K, my whole entire life was kind of, uh, I want to be in the FBI. I think it was just the idea of just watching, um, watching a bunch of TV shows, not knowing anything else that existed besides law enforcement and law and the world mm. kind of at hand. And it was just kind of cool. It was cool to be a law enforcer. It was cool to be secretive. And my whole life was kind of directed at that. Um, after meeting Mr. K and then meeting other dynamic teachers who were dynamic in their own ways, I started to understand like, Ooh, wait, <laughs> I don't really want to kind of support this organization that has done so much harm into communities like my own. I wanted to kind of jump into teaching and education because, well, that's what I saw change the direction of my life. And I wonder how that can change the direction of other people's lives. Um, so at the very beginning, it was all about, well, let me be an FBI. I'm going to enforce the law and I'm going to protect everyone. After getting in there, I realized, oh, you know what, maybe teaching. Maybe teaching is really the direction of where I want to be. And so when I was kind of in 12th grade senior year, still... I didn't have anybody in my local community or even my family that went to college. My family and my mom and dad barely graduated middle school back when they immigrated from Hong Kong. And so when they came here, I didn't really, have, I'm the oldest brother too. So I kind of had to figure everything out by myself. We weren't by any means well off. We weren't by any means maybe 
mid-income, low-income, we were we didn't have a lot. <laughs> we didn't get to eat a lot of days, and that was normal. I thought it was very normal. And so schools became that site of like not only feeding and nourishing the mind, but also feeding and nourishing the actual body. Um, I think when I got to senior year, I fortunately had a college counselor, and I know not everybody is afforded that kind of one-to-one interaction, but I was afforded that, and she said, "Hey, like." You've been working so hard in school. Like, why don't you think about applying to, say, a UC? I think in my time there, I wanted to just go to community college. Uh, my dad at the time was also uh, ill, so I wanted to make sure I was getting a lot of money and then also helping and supporting him. But she implored me to kind of say, hey, why don't you put your name out in the UC system? We have a couple local ones here. San Diego's down there since you wanted to explore a little bit of SoCal. Why don't you check it out? After applying through a couple schools, I got accepted into... San Diego. I didn't get accepted into of the local UCs in the Bay Area, which were uh, at the time, like Berkeley was a really big one. And so after looking and realizing, oh, actually, I can get paid to go to school. I get financial aid refund checks to go and check out San Diego, a place that I have never been, and also a place where I can kind of grow by myself and still kind of distantly support my dad. Um, yeah, let me give it a try. So I went there. I went there my first year I started with sociology just because I didn't know anything else. I thought sociology was similar to history. Uh, at the time, I was like, well, what kind of jobs? Because if going to college, it's also getting a job in a way. I didn't want to set myself up for a disaster. And of course, I don't mean it, but this is the reflection of like, well, history at the time that wasn't profitable in any way. I didn't just want to study history. Like, what's the point? Um, so I went there and I ended up just kind of transitioning majors to ethics studies. Uh, transitioning to education and then I minored in history and it was just a way of me saying oh I didn't know ethnic studies existed Um, and my Mr. K he taught in a way that was ethnic studies it wasn't anything new I felt seen in the ways that I saw the world and the ways that I couldn't explore and be as vocal inside my hometown here I had people my age older and mentors that felt the same saw the same and was willing to take action the same as me um, in education, in social justice, in protesting, in any of that, any of that. So UC San Diego, I think I found my my core community as I grew up in my young adult years. Mm-hmm. So, as you're connecting um, these issues of like ethnic studies and history, um, then that led you kind of start thinking about maybe becoming a teacher. Yeah, yeah, I think. Once I got out of the FBI mindset in getting into like a, my first year of college, um, I thought, well, I was still working towards that in the very first quarter. And then the very oh, first really? quarter, I, yeah, like I was like, okay, let me go study some like history of crime or things like that. Cause it was still sociology. Mm-hmm. Um, I was failing all my classes. I've never got anything lower than like A in high school. I didn't understand a single thing that was happening. And I was thinking like, wait, wait, I thought I was really smart. I thought I, I thought I knew what to do, but it turns out I wasn't even taught how to write properly. I wasn't, well, in the way of academia, in the way of higher academia, as so the school says we were preparing folks. But it turns out I went to college without any technical skills. And so I saw myself failing. I saw myself wanting to drop out. And not only was my financial aid at stake, but also like well, my, my whole pride, my whole ego at the time. And so I found someone who was an Asian American mentor and I was like, I don't know what's happening. Like, I feel like I don't belong here. And then she said, well, maybe, maybe the major that you chose or the direction of your life just probably isn't fitting right now. Why don't you take a class on ethnic studies? You can still switch in. It's called land and labor. We have this amazing professor, Dr. Yana Spiritu. And then when I went there, I met like another 
professor in my life, just like Mr. K, that changed the direction. She articulated everything so so cleanly, made the connections, and I saw like, wait, you can do this at a large scale level. You can you can study history. You can teach history. You have people in here who want to listen and learn, and you're also changing the directions of their life and the minds that they have in that moment. So I thought, why don't I explore this aspect a little bit more? I didn't think teaching was part of my direction, but now that I've studied it more, like this is kind of what I want to do. It's great. It's a direct impact, and I'm also invigorated every day knowing that I'm nudging the envelope a little bit for every person in whatever aspect of their life they want to take in. Doesn't have to be teaching. Doesn't have to be social justice. We still need abolitionists in tech. We still need very critical people in the medical field. And so, teaching is kind of that's when I started going into let me be a teacher. I really love this. And did you do internships and stuff like that with with local schools, or did you do anything like that? I did. After I got into the actual major, um, I had this mentor. I, I feel like I just the world. I'm very privileged. I'm very privileged that the world keeps pushing me to really wonderful mentors and really amazing teachers. I got paired at a local high school. Um, the local high school was in, I believe, Southeast San Diego. So if anybody knows the Southeast San Diego area, it's a part where there's a lot of black and brown kids, uh, places that I grew up familiar, familiar with. And so the teacher I was placed with, he was one of the authors of the ethnic studies model curriculum. Um, he was a very, very amazing guy. He taught U.S. history, he taught world history and ethnic studies. And I also didn't know that that guy would have changed my life in the two hours that I was volunteering or placed there. Yeah, all I was kind of there was being a tutor, <laughs> but the the tutoring like showed me like, oh, you look very differently and teach very differently than the two other mentors I had in my life. And yet you're still making that exact same impact as I'm just talking to these kids. They're like, this is my favorite teacher. He's real with us. He's showing me the world. Like, man, like I didn't know this looks like that. Or I didn't know gentrification was even real. Like I want to, I want to be a teacher and I, I just got fortunately placed with just some really great people. And some of these days I think like, I wonder if other people would have benefited. Like maybe I, I don't know why I got so lucky, but I just got placed with really good teachers. And even when I got into the UCLA program, I also got placed with an amazing two teachers as well that showed me teaching just looks so differently. And it isn't that kind of cut and paste thing as what I originally thought it was supposed to look. So let's, 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 you, you mentioned about getting into the teacher ed program. Um, and that experience was very, very unique in your first year. So during this time, you, you were taking all your classes online. You, you were student teaching yes. <laughs> online. <laughs> so what was that like? Yeah. So starting with the classes online, uh, believe it or not, like I love it. I think, I think the online kind of format, works well with me and maybe it's just because I my generation I come from I'm very familiar with technology. I love computers and technology and it just benefited me well because we were able to not only take actual classes and learn, but I was also able to do kind of miscellaneous things around the apartment that I wouldn't have been able to clean, cook, eat, use the restroom and just kind of like do all of these things that I didn't have to put a performance uh, as if we was going out into the world. I think going out into the world, any place you go from the grocery store to a class, there's a little level of performance you have to put on. But I felt like my full self when taking those online classes. Of course, I think everybody was adjusting to that. And I think the connections that we 
made or was trying to make was more difficult because we were now unfamiliar with, oh, wow, like now suddenly everything's like a FaceTime call or suddenly everything's a Zoom meeting. Um, how do we calibrate to this level of unfamiliarity to familiarity? So I would say for me, I was lucky because I love technology and it just worked well. I think the student teaching aspect for sure was difficult. Um, it was not what I envisioned in terms of getting myself ready to be a teacher. But I was also now reflecting like years after and thinking maybe that actually was what I needed in that specific time of history. I think 2020, as everybody was kind of getting locked in, um, for some people not also having a home to even quarantine it. And then you had students zooming in from iPods, um, going into McDonald's or sitting outside McDonald's with their masks just to go to class. It was very eye-opening. I think like there's things that you learn in school and there's things that you learn as being a student where you go in, you do classroom management, you do classroom teaching. But I think the 2020 student teaching to teaching experience reminded me like, you're not as, not everybody was as lucky as you to be able to go to a physical classroom, to be able to have a pen or pencil, to even be able to have Wi-Fi or the proper technology to be able to succeed in a school setting. And so after like seeing kids zooming in from work, <laughs> and they, these were middle schoolers, work in a pandemic, zooming in for class. We had high schoolers sitting outside McDonald's for class or if they were lucky outside a library that had their Wi-Fi still on for class, um, it changed the idea of what education was. It was a lot less of, let me teach you some history. And, and that still mattered. But I saw from my mentor teachers, well, at this moment, like, what do the kids need? Yeah, we can teach about the declaration of all that. And that still matters. Um, but at the moment of the time, it, what mattered for the kids was that they felt like they could connect and seen them. You know, I think it did a lot for adults to not be with community or physical bodies for a while, but I wonder, and I'm seeing, we're seeing the effects now of what these specific kids were, had to be affected with when they don't have physical people or young people in their eyes that they can interact with, talk with, learn with, grow with, make mistakes with. Um, now everything's suddenly a tech, tech screen and suddenly black boxes and no one was saying anything but the teacher or maybe one or two students um, because they weren't able to. So that changed the direction of education for me as well, reminding me like, it's not about these testing things. Not that I ever thought that per se. It wasn't about just writing essays and reading documents, but it was about like who the child is as a child because there's still kids and there's still people outside of being a student. So that student teaching experience was a wild one. It taught me a lot about humanizing kids and humanizing people um, in this entire profession. When you ended that, that first year, um, as you ended your first year of, of your student teaching, getting your preliminary credential, what were your thoughts um, at the end of that that first year? Were, were you maybe questioning this journey? Were you thinking, um, like, is this what's it going to be like for a long time? Like, what, what was going through your head? Ending the first year of student teaching, I want to, like, preface, I wasn't doing this alone. Uh, I was paired with a, a great partner teacher who I'm still very much in contact with. We'll just call him E for this word, uh, for this name. Um, but E was someone who also taught me a lot about education in a different way. Someone who grew up in the East LA area, someone who grew up in the LA area taught me like, wow, like education means so much for specific types of kids and specific types of communities. And so after ending this like first year of teaching with E inside the middle school and the high school level, 
And we were told like, oh, we're going to transition back to in person and it's going to look a, look a certain way. It might not look a certain way. It was, it was weird. I think both me and him were, we still wanted to do it without a doubt. Um, but we were like, what is this going to look like? We got an online student teaching experience, which was great. Um, and it served the purpose of the time. But now we were going to be thrusted and just like me and him and all the other cohort mates, we were about to be thrusted into communities and places that we have never been before. We were now thrusted in communities and places that were not, for some of us, not our student teaching experiences. Some of us were in different middle schools, different high schools. Some of us have to commute hours away. And so when we went into, when we were getting ourselves ready for that mentally, I want to say, at least for me, I was super nervous. I, I didn't, I was unfamiliar with what it meant to set up a classroom. <laughs> I was unfamiliar with what it meant to manage a classroom outside of, can you mute please? Or can you please turn on your camera? I was, I'm, I was unfamiliar with the physical politics of the school because every space has some sort of politics. And so I think being in the program and being with like-minded people had me thinking, we are going to have this amazing social justice experience. We are going to have a social justice experience where even the people who hired us knew what we were going to come in with, come in with this social justice teaching, this action-oriented framework. And when we, I was met with, when I went to work in my first school, I was met with kind of the opposite. Um, and it, it like took me, took me like for a whirlwind. I, I didn't, I didn't know that my first year of like my first official year of teaching was going to turn out the way it did. Mm. So what, what did you get hired to teach? Let's start with that. So you're, so you're teaching at a middle school or high school now? So I was teaching at a high school um, okay. in LA and for LAUSD specifically and teaching in that specific high school, I was hired to teach. Well, I was hired to technically teach us history. And then I think the first week when I was going in with a fellow a cohort mate for a tour, I was told I was going to teach government economics. And then I was also told, oh, you're also going to have a sheltered class. And for those who don't know what a sheltered class is, it's essentially a class where everybody in there is an uh, English learner, um, where have a variety of English learner levels. And so some people in there have acquired the English language and the reading, writing proficiency level, and some in there newly immigrated. And so I was like, okay, okay. I'm going to take this on. I'm going to try to figure this out. And some of them were honors as well. So I had like one, two, three, four, five different classes, types of classes I was teaching um, with one class of prep where I was able to just like have my own time. Um, so that was like, it was, it was an awakening. It was like, okay, you had all the theory and you had some semi-practice, but now here's the reality of what schools are. And the reality wasn't so kind. So I, so it was a, it was a big transition. So in addition to all of the responsibilities, right, you're, you're trying to figure out how do you enact um, your social justice um, within this context? Yeah. Yeah. So as I was thinking of that, like, I, I was really honed in on teaching U.S. history. I, that was my bread and butter. It still is my bread and butter. I, like, grew up with love of that. Um, and I think, like, after going into government economics and also the shelter class, I was like, how do you how do you make economics and government social justice? I think I wasn't, I wasn't prepared or maybe I wasn't thinking of it in that way. And then for the shelter class, that gave me a reality check too. 
it, I was thinking like, yeah, I can teach about the Panthers. I can teach about this. I can teach about X, Y, Z, and we can learn about all these things and be dynamic social justice folks. Well, how can you do that when you don't even speak some of the languages that the students speak? How can you do that when the students don't really understand the basic context of what you're trying to say because they didn't grow up here and it's not their fault? Um, how do you do that when you don't have the structural support of an ELD coordinator to be able to give you anything but, hey, why don't you try a graphic organizer? Well, yeah, trying that. <laughs> Can you tell me, like, well, do you have anything else besides that? And not only that, like, the class space itself wasn't systematically structured, right? Like, I had classes in the very beginning with 48 students. <laughs> and, like, to give a like an image in mind, like, I'm a 5'3 short Asian guy. <laughs> I'm, like, a smaller frame and... So now you have me with the kids who are like basically my age, much taller, much bigger than me. And, they, and first coming in, they're like, well, where's the teacher? Well, I'm wondering that too. Like I'm over in here. Like now you have like 40 something classes, 40 something students. And my room was also like a, it was like a makeshift yoga room that turned into a classroom. So it was just a weird situation. Now I was now thrust into this and thinking I was going to do all these theoretical dynamic social justice work. But before I can even begin the teaching aspect, now you have to think about the practicality of it. You have kids who are now coming out from online and coming out from lack of socialization. You're also coming, they're also coming in with a cramped, non-ventilated room. You're also coming in with a teacher that doesn't even speak the language of the students in there. You're coming in with problems that have arisen from the pandemic that are being brought into the classroom and so the first year was it was a little bit of it was a lot of teaching but it was also a lot of like gosh how can we heal even a little bit from the trauma and the, the damage that has been done from the mishandling of covid in the united states and so like it was it was a, it was a whirlwind is what i have to first say with that and and, it, and in addition to that, how was I mean I, mean, I know you you mentioned um, one of the staff members, but how was administration supporting you during this time? I think, and I don't want to put blame. I think like years of reflecting on what has happened in my first year of teaching, I want to like acknowledge that you know like, I think being an administrator in any school is not easy. I think being a manager or being someone who has to work with thousands of students, not really work with, but manage thousands of students, manage budgets, manage people, manage managers, like that's not easy stuff. And so I want to first like preface that and start with saying like, thank you to the administrators to be able to do that kind of work. It's not easy. I can never see myself doing that. I think I also want to extend that the administration was not very supportive. Um, I think that specific school year, if we were, I was hired under the pretext that I was going to be working with a specific principal. And that specific principal, we already had an idea of who that person was. But as I was hired and transitioned in, she or that person was transitioning out. And so now you had a new person, a new person coming in from a dis, from the same district, but from a middle school level and coming, coming to the high school level. It's very different how you manage it. Coming from a background and teaching that wasn't placed specifically in a classroom and also a person that physically and socially and culturally doesn't align well with the students of the community at hand. And so I think the new leadership changed the way that some of the teachers were treated, changed the priorities of the school. And 
it kind of felt like that person who was kind of transitioning in wasn't really there for what the mission of that specific school was, which is why me and the colleagues signed on to it. Uh, like I really saw myself working at that school for a very long time. Then after the year, like my life took a turn, but I would say that the administration in the initial parts were so supportive. And we had a lot of people, we had some people in there who also was from the program that worked there that also had some good things to say. I think the reality hit after the first few months and I realized like the support was only verbal. Um, the support wasn't actually there. Um, so it wasn't. Yeah, I mean, that was, that was like you're saying, it, it was a confluence of a lot of different factors that, uh, for a lot of different people. Um, yeah. During time. I mean, I remember seeing um, a survey that was done, I think a year after um, when you finished your first year of teaching, where they, they sent a, a national survey out to teachers um, if they either considered uh, leaving the classroom or yeah. if they did leave, the, you know, and they came back to something like 75% of teachers were considering leaving the, not just the school, but the profession um, because of just all the different challenges and difficulties they experienced. And I mean, the same thing for administrators, they were also under a tremendous right. amount uh, of pressure, especially, right, this whole and they're saying about the learning loss and mm. there's a lot of pressure for admin to to get English scores up and to get um, math scores up and and we have to do that <laughs> with, yeah. with more testing <laughs> and we have to do that yeah. now and this year and to be able to to re recoup from that so yeah like it was just and it's been right we still have we still have a lot of fallout from that yeah that, that moment yeah I think the I definitely saw that. I think my first year of teaching in, you know, I think there's a specific story to share in the moment about that. But I think for the first year of teaching, I, I it was weird because we, we, the teachers that I was around, um, the people that I trained with and some of the newer teachers that I found community with, um, I found a community with like all first year teachers at the school. All, most of them were first year teachers and it was like a saving grace. Um, we were definitely there to, yes, teach, but also be able to help students heal and process what has happened. And that stuff doesn't come easy. It doesn't, it's not a write it on your post about your feeling, crumple up and throw it in the trash can, and then suddenly we're healed. You know, it's a year long of like, hey, like we're still learning, but there's also a lot of things that we might not know has affected us because of the pandemic. Um, and as some of us had that kind of approach for the school year, I noticed that the administration had a really big thing about to making sure that we were all, I think at the time we were also trying to get WASA credited. So it was the whole, it was like, it was weird. Like you would think that they would kind of pause that in the moment, but mm -hmm. the first year we come back in, we had to get accredited back to be a school. And then suddenly it went from the direction when we were told we're going to come back and we're one community to, okay, we're coming back. Now you better read, you better write, you better take this test. We better get good test scores. We better do this. We better do that. We need to have the rigor, the rigor and that keyword rigor. And it was, it was a lot. Like I, I, I was just trying to figure out how to manage a 48 person classroom in the first few days. And now I'm suddenly having to deal with my responsibility of also getting them ready for this test. And then for the sheltered class, I had to get them ready for the LPAC. And then for this and that, and then it was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, hold up. You, we first said like, we were going to just make sure that the kids mental state and who they were was right. And now we're thrust into 
well, we got to make sure the cast is correct. We got to make sure the SBAC is right. We better make sure that all of these tests are looking good so that we're able to do all that. And, and, and in a way, I can try to empathize and understand from a school district setting that, you know, this is, I guess, the responsibility of the school, but that doesn't make, not necessarily make it right. It's just the way that it's been done. Um, so I think that coupled with this testing culture of the school from being told one thing and being taken to a completely different direction was like, whoa, like, what is my role as a teacher? Like, I, I really wanted to teach some dynamic history and open the minds up for these kids. And it made me like reflect, like, my teacher did that for me. But now I wonder, like, what were the other inner politics that they had to deal with as they were teaching these kind of things? Because, well, I think I, I learned that very quickly and very well um, in my first year. Mm. You, you had mentioned that um, there was a story that you wanted to tell. Um... But during my first year, um, so I'm a ethnic studies trained. I want to be, I want to like teach ethnic studies full time. And I was U.S. history teacher with ethnic studies lens. And so with that said, like so much of my thing of teaching history is about understanding that the world doesn't have to wait to look at the way it is. It doesn't have to be learning about these figures and memorizing historical dates, but it's about how can you take these histories of resistance, history of people fighting back and talking back to power, and how can you use that to be able to further your own, like, further your own path and further your own community's path? And so in the very beginning, um, just like any other teacher, you decorate your classroom. <laughs> and so for me, decorating my classroom was putting up some flags that represented queer youth, represented trans youth, represented black youth as well. It was also putting up some posters that I guess might be a little bit provocative. I think for me, given my age and the generation that I come from and the generation that I come from is weirdly to say also the generation of my students. And so I had a good pulse of what they respond well with. I had a good pulse with like, they don't want to be lied to similar like me. Kids can see when you're lying to them. They can also see when you're fibbing and they can also see when you're not telling the whole truth. And so I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to be that teacher. I wanted to show them not necessarily show them my politics because it's not necessary a hundred percent to show them that to teach them something. But I also wanted them to know, like I see history and I see the world in a specific way, whether you agree or not completely fine. I'm not trying to make you think a certain way, but by putting up some specific types of posters that was anti-abolition or that was abolitionist or anti-racist that was criticizing settler colonial states abroad and here that was criticizing the U S government. I think that rubs some people completely the wrong way. Um, I think it rubbed a specific, I want to like first say, I think it rubbed a specific, maybe a student the wrong way, or maybe it wasn't even that deep. Maybe it was, Oh, this is different, or this is interesting. After my whole years of high school or school, I've never seen a poster like that. Let me snap a picture and show a parent. And so I don't blame, I don't blame the student. I also don't really blame them having interest in having and doing that. I think that was the purpose of it. It was the purpose of sparking conversation that you had a provocative poster that was criticizing the government. And I'm not saying anything like down with blah, blah, blah. It was clearly just criticizing the government grounded in historical truth nothing out of the ordinary, at least I thought. And so after that was shared out and it was like my first three weeks in my first official year of teaching, things spiraled out of control. Like it was telling you night and day, things change. I remember 
I remember waking up because we wake up really early in this teacher. We woke up at like 5 a.m. And I had like four calls from administration principal. And I was like, whoa, like, that's weird. How do you have my number? Um, I called them back or I listened to the voicemail first. And I remember them saying like, hey, we need to talk. Um, and I was like, okay, let's, let's talk. So I called them back and they were answered really quick. And I was like, hey, have you checked the news? I was like, not yet. <laughs> what do I need to see? Uh, she said, well, why don't you plug in these keywords? Uh, I plugged in the keywords and it was like, it was, I had, it was a moment of shock. I, I never expected myself to see myself, um, not my name, but see the, my classroom in the news. And it wasn't like a amazing teacher or teacher of the year. It was like, it was like, um, teacher trying to indoctrinate our kids or um, anti-U.S. rhetoric in the classroom or um, criticizing the police or like anti-police, blah, blah. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. And as I kept scrolling and talking to the, talking to the person on the other end of the phone, I was like, what is happening here? Like, I, wait, wait, the people are, she's, and then they told me like, people are outside the school right now. Like we have news stations there that are waiting. Um, before anything happens, we want to make sure you get into school safely. So, you know, I think in the moment I was like, okay, I'm shocked. I'm nervous. I'm not necessarily like scared because I didn't know what was happening. I, I, based off of the conversation I had with the administration, I, I thought, okay, seems like something has happened. Something has happened a little sooner than what I thought in my career. And this person or administration was able to protect me or so it seemed. Um, and so they, they brought me in, they hid me from all the news people and all the people that were wanting to like find out who that was. And namely like these articles were very negative. Like they were calling for me to get fired. They were some of them, like you, you're never supposed to read YouTube comments if you post a video. Right. But, you know, I read the comment of the article and, you know, some of them were saying some really heinous things. Um, and I'm not going to name them for the sake of it, but you can leave it up to imagination that it was like things you shouldn't be saying to someone, especially if you value humanity in life. Um, so when I was finally brought into my classroom, I was met with first one administrator who hired me on was like, Hey, like you okay. Like she, they were genuinely checking in with me saying, okay, we're going to handle this. We're going to figure this out together. And so from that first interaction, I did, I did, it was like, okay, like I made a mistake. Um, maybe I, maybe I didn't need to have these posters up and I can do without them. I can still teach without them. It's not a big deal. So then afterwards, after they left, immediately followed was the school principal. Um, and I thought, okay, I have the big person out here that really helped me out. They're going to defend me. And the first thing they said was like, they, they were like, um, well, one of the first things was, were you not thinking of your Jewish students when you were putting these posters up? Um, and I think for anybody, because I don't want to, get this podcast flagged or anything based on what I say, but that was not one of the first things I would have thought. It was a weird question. And the, and the school, I think, I think they got a lot of pushback and fire from the Jewish community specifically there because of the things that I was criticizing based off of the poster there and was teaching about. And from then on, I, I think at that moment I was like, Oh, wait, this is a weird turn in the conversation. Um, they were then telling me like, okay, like we're going to need you to take all of these things down. Um, we're going to need to have a meeting, but then they reassured me saying, but we'll make sure we're like, we're, we got you. Like we're here. We're going to support you. We're going to protect you. 
And so I did, I did, I complied. I took down the posters. I, I let things kind of simmer down for a little bit um, as much as I could have. Um, and then as a first year, you also get evaluated as a teacher. And so my evaluator was originally this one person, but then it got intentionally switched to the principal. And so I thought, I think very naive or also just believing what I was told, like this person was here to protect me. Like they just wanted to make sure that my teaching was in line, that I was following all the rules, client and all of that. And I, I get that to an extent. Um, but then I think a month into the situation that hasn't died down, but it just, it just suddenly got uglier. Like it just got uglier. It, it got more visceral. Like I got called in multiple times with my principal um, criticizing me and my actions. And it took from one turn of like, Hey, like we're here for you to, okay, so you're not compliant. You're not professional. Why would you do this? Were you not thinking of your Jewish students? You know, we have law enforcement people that we work with. Why would you do this? And it went from, I've got your back to saying, well, I got to save my own back. So let me put this on you. And so then it went from like, do you know what people are saying to me? Calling me and saying, well, and it was like, well, it's not even about you, first of all, but I get that. Um, then like I was teaching normally and it was like the first semester was just hell. I, it felt like hell. I had people from the actual school district at one time come in, like eight of them, to take pictures of my class to observe me teaching. But how can you observe a study hall? Because we, I also had a class that was a study hall specific. So then in that moment, I was like, oh, this is like really weird. Like you are coming in to observe, but you're really here to see who the quote unquote perpetrator is. Um, and then I think in that moment, I realized like, oh, these people don't have my back. These people really don't have my back. Uh, we did go through like a community circle with the students. No one was affected. I have that written in documentation. Kids have explicitly told me like, I don't know why everybody's making such a big mess. You're one of the best. You're, I'm glad that you have this up. Like it was not a problem. So I knew from the students, like no one was really directly affected or at least no one that told me. Um, things started getting out of hand when my observations were starting. And then I got like really low ratings for things that weren't outside my teaching. So that inevitably affected my teaching career up until this day that I still have to wrestle with because I got like below expectations because of professionalism. Um, I was also, I was also told multiple times that what I was doing was unprofessional, um, that how I was approaching history was, I remember this specific saying too, it was like, why do you have to teach things so provocatively? Why couldn't you teach about like advocacy? Uh, why can't you teach about this? And I'm like, well, like, I am. I don't like, you're just telling me you want me to teach out of the book or you don't want me to teach very specifically. And so I think the politicization of teaching also woke me up in that moment. Like, yeah, I knew teaching history and ethnic studies was political, but now I know what it really means to teach it. And given the historical context of the 2020, like during that time, people were, well, people were forced to see um, violence towards black and brown indigenous communities in such a scale that they couldn't ignore because all community people had was the online one. And so now you had, you had people who were all about, let's make sure that we are critical of the system, but that also equally woke up people who said, well, actually the people who are teaching ethnic studies, people who are teaching history or people who want to go down with the system are the people who are wrong. And so I was on the receiving end of like, well, you're the problem. I think I became almost like a, a scapegoat, <laughs> a scapegoat mm -hmm. for I was becoming a political pawn of what was happening in LAUSD at the time.
And I think also just to contextualize, right, that this is also within the context of also the backlash to the Black Lives Movement, too, yeah. we're beginning to see, and, and also to the backlash of the defunding, um, yeah. uh, police defunding movement, too. Yeah. So you're you're being caught in this historical moment where people are trying to push back against um, these efforts. Yeah, because like I mentioned, like, it's not, it's it wasn't, different that I had some students whose families were in law enforcement or community members in there that were with law enforcement. And at that time, LAUSD, well, not LAUSD, Black students specifically um, defunded the police and pushed all the police off of LAUSD campuses, which was an amazing win. Um, and I've, I've always supported them since my student teaching experience. And I think this became a shitty political pawn to kind of push back against it while saying, well, now you have these teachers who are now saying that all oh, police are bad. You know, I wasn't saying a single thing of that. Like I wasn't naming that at all, but we were using me and my, I guess, actions to kind of bring police back on campus, refund the police and push back against the black students who are fighting for their humanity and the humanity of other students and people who are on campus. And so I really just want to teach history. I say that so much all the time. Like I really just want to teach history. And teaching history, I guess, comes with this politicalness. Um, it's, it's something I didn't think I would have to take on so early in my life or early in my career. But I think I was like, I felt like this is kind of the space I wanted to be in. Well, now reflecting on that, I think in the moment there was like, why am I here? Like, I, I don't want to be here anymore. As you're moving through this moment, and I mean, it's very obvious, right? Sometimes what, what ends up happening in this case is as, Rather than trying to be supportive, what, what happens is these um, observations become uh, not just moments of surveillance, but also trying to flag um, mm -hmm. moments or instances to push out teachers. Um, uh, how did this um, moment culminate into? Or Yeah, I think you named it completely correct. I want to like first say like the, my history department chair and history department was very supportive of me. Uh, it's very interesting because you have the very people in there who are the quote-unquote experts of teaching history. And they're like, well, you didn't do nothing wrong. Maybe you didn't even have the poster up, but that also wasn't the worst thing in the world. Um, I think you hit it on the mark that this evaluator system and process had to be the way to push me out um, in a way that I couldn't kind of negotiate with. Um, and also being a first-year teacher, for those who don't know, especially being a probationary first year probationary teacher, you don't have a lot of protections that are afforded with you. It's similar to working at a charter school for, unless you have a union and a contract that you are an at-will employee and being an at-will employee means that you can kind of be let go for any reason. Um, I think that for my principal and the people that, the people that they had to answer to, they didn't want to just have me able to kind of push back because I, I have demonstrated that I wasn't just going to let people talk at me crazy to talk at me and say like, Hey, like you're a professional. Well, let me give the other story first. It's like, yeah, you may be telling me that, but I'm also saying like, uh, no, <laughs> you can't just say that to me because X, Y, Z, X, Y, Z. So I was already known. And, you know, I think as I grew up in my life, I'm, I'm very known as someone who isn't afraid to speak back and use evidence to speak back and make people feel like sit in their words. And so I think, 
the principal realized, and they also wrote in the evaluation that I'm not a team player. <laughs> um, and I'm with, and they just didn't seem like they could have wanted to work with me or have me here. And it was unfortunate because I was really ready to set up shop in LA. Like I was really ready to like round my roots in LA for a little bit, potentially live here, raise a family. But all of that was kind of taken away slash pushed out because of the actions of the school district and the principal. Uh, I went towards the union rep <laughs> at the school for some support because um, I've always been a union person. I understood the power of collective voices, collective bargaining. When I eventually went to the union rep, well, first, they've ignored me <laughs> throughout the whole process. They've ignored me for months, for months at end. When I tried to set up physical in-person meetings, I've sent multiple emails saying, hey, like, I need some sort of legal support because things are getting out of hand. Like, you have people talking at me. You have people who writing death threats about me. You have people wanting me to get fired, to get kicked out of the profession, to get my preliminary credential revoked. Like, can you help me? Like, at least be a voice with me. Um, that person never answered. And then three months as I'm in the full force of this, they come into my classroom during lunch for like two minutes um, and was like, hey, like you're the one who's been emailing me, right? I'm like, oh, thank God, like you're finally here. And and I kid you not, the first thing that they tell me was like, well, I'm glad that you took down the posters. Like, you, you know what you did wrong, right? <laughs> and that was, and that was shocking because this was someone who, who, who I thought as a union rep would at least hold back their first political thoughts and just at least be there to guide me, console me, legally represent me in whatever way. But it was like victimizing or no, bullying me in a way. And was saying like, okay, well, you know what you did wrong. Can't help you in anything else. And so I'm like, okay, now I'm stuck. And now I'm being surveyed by the district. I, I'm getting set up for disciplinary meetings. I'm, I, I'm a naive first-year teacher um, thinking that people would have my back. And now I'm suddenly like, gotta get, believe it or not, I get kicked out of the school and kicked out of the district was what potentially what happened. I... I went and reached out to the previous um, union rep. I went out and reached out to the UTLA people, and they were definitely out. Um, this union, um, the people there, the actual people who were willing to help, um, found support for me. Um, I had people who actually posted about my situation now that you know things were so loud and it was becoming national news. It was like... It's, it's been posted uh, everywhere and people are making comments, but now you have also the opposite end. It wasn't all bad. I had peers who would post positively about me. I had the person who, would, who made the poster post about me, email me, offering legal help. Two lawyers in the LA area that were willing to support me for free. I had people who were willing to share my story. And, you know, I think at the time, I, I just didn't want, I just wanted to die down. I just wanted to teach history. Um, so now I, now I'm in like close to January, second semester, and now I have a full force back in me. And now I have the full force of the district coming at me. And so it's like almost like a movie, like a crux and a kind of like a climax point. Like, okay, where are we going now? Um, come towards the middle to the end of the year. I been evaluated a couple times, a lot of unexpected drop-ins and then, I sat down for my formal evaluation um, and my formal evaluation, my principal was telling me that, Hey, like you're, you're not going to be returning. 
And then I think I, I petitioned for like a secondary meeting. And that's when I set up, set my piece, uh, said everything I needed to say. But it was in those moments I was like, well, why am I here? Like, I, I've been told that I, I was a great teacher from peers and people in the past. I've been trained to teach. I've been wanting to teach. And now that I'm teaching and doing what I was taught to do and how to do it and from great mentors, well, now I'm being reprimanded and banned from LAUSD for X amount of years. Um, and it's, it was a shitty feeling. I think as much as in the moment I want to say I'm okay and as much as I want to say now, that kind of moment has impacted my trajectory of my career. Um, that's one of the reasons why I can't really stay in LA anymore. That's one of the reasons why I'm a little bit more biting my tongue and a little bit of like afraid and afraid of being a teacher. And I think these moments like awakened my, awakened a fear that I didn't know I had, but also awakened like a, like a, a direction that I know I needed to take if I wanted to stay here. But you didn't stop teaching, right? Because um, at the end of that year, um, what, what, what decision did you make? Well, at the end of the year, um, after not being allowed to come back to the school in the school district, I had the, had the letter, letter end of the year think like, okay, well, I'm basically being banned from the biggest, one of the biggest districts, but the biggest district in California, um, not particularly a lot of amazing job prospects there. So let me look at different industry, the different things I can do, looked in the project management, looked in the video game industry, but nothing really spoke to me like teaching. Nothing still speaks to me like teaching. Like, I think some people are born with wanting to do a specific thing or a direction in life. I think for me, it's teaching was one of them. So I didn't want to give up on it yet. I also spent a lot of money to do this. So I want to at least see it through for a little bit longer. So I ended up looking at a place, looking at some places that, you know, I wouldn't originally have looked at, which were charter schools. Um, and we've named before, uh, we've named in classes, we've named in the past, we've named here that, you know, charter schools are run by charter management organizations. It's run by hedge fund donors. It's run by business people. So I knew, especially as a student from a charter school, that being in a charter school was was not going to be what I wanted to do for education. But I also didn't have any choice. I had to enter the charter school world. I applied to a couple ones. I interviewed. I did demo lessons for a couple ones. I got accepted in a couple of them. And after talking with you, talking with some people along the way, I decided to give another shot. Can you name other maybe factors that helped you continue with this decision about that you want to be a teacher or that you need to be a teacher? I think um, the need to be a teacher comes from, comes from my own high school experiences was seeing, like I told you, like so many students being pushed out, um, seeing so many people who worked so hard in their lives, just maybe not academically, be kicked out of school, expelled, suspended, seeing the impact I actually made in my first year of teaching at that school that I was ultimately kicked out from, kids crying because of the situation for me, kids organizing for me, kids um, petitioning for me, kids wanting to walk out for me and understanding like, wait, in the moments that I thought I was doing the worst thing in the world or so I was fed to believe that I was ruining the reputation in school 
or damaging the community's sense of acceptance within the school. It turns out I was really solidifying that sense of community in the school. I was responding to what the kids wanted to hear and see. And so when I saw, when in those like year, in the year that I was working with these kids and realizing that, you know, like maybe I made a mistake with the posters, maybe, or I was fed to believe, but if a mistake looks like kids wanted to take away action, learning the history of protesting, learning the history of education, learning what history can do to take actionable steps, well then this mistake was probably the best mistake I've ever made because I learned that I've mobilized young people just like what my teacher did for me. Maybe not in the way that I thought I was going to, but I think that's part of what organizing is, that it doesn't look like you think you're going to do it this way, but life gives you a turn, power responds back, and then you'll see people who are going to stand with you and for you. Um, and it wasn't just the kids. It was the other teachers. It was my cohort mates. It was the UCLA program. It was the colleague I was hired with who was my biggest cheerleader and supporter who put their job on the line to speak up for me as well, to criticize the principal, to mobilize their students for me too, and realizing that I can't let this go to waste. This whole year of me fighting back, of me losing sleep and losing, losing meals, of me having people standing up for me from kids to staff to adults to people and lawyers who are willing to help me, I, I can't give up now. I, I want to at least give this a real shot in mobilizing, organizing students, maybe not in the way that I did my first year, but maybe in a different And I couldn't give up because if I gave up, then that would mean that I I've spent so much of my time saying that I'm going to do this, working towards this, and then ultimately just giving up because power won for a moment. Well, then I'm no different than the people I've criticized. I, I'm no different than the people that I've said, well, why aren't you standing up for X or why aren't you fighting and mobilizing for these people? Well, they were probably had power topple over them and they had to conform. And I didn't, I didn't want to be that person. I didn't want to grow into complacency. I didn't want to take these very formative, important years of my life and the kid's life to just say, well, the system won. And so I'll do what the system wants. I'll collect the paycheck. I'll just get a job. I'll live my life idly and I won't ruffle the feathers anymore. It won. And I didn't want to let that happen. It wasn't, it wasn't what I built myself to become. And so yeah. I'm wondering... If if you uh, like, what would you be your advice of of like of a person uh, saying, "I want to be a teacher and I, and I want to become a teacher"? Uh, what would you um, say to them as they're entering this profession? Yeah, I think if well, I'm, I'm very new still, right? I'm still year three. I've been in education for a while, but I'm officially like working as a teacher for year three. I would say for these like short and very eventful <laughs> few years, um, I would say that first understand like why you want to teach. I think it's easy to fall into the routine and the mundane of starting with a warm up or a bowler, going through a lesson, ending with an exit ticket, rinse and repeat every single day. And I think for some people, I mean, at least speaking for myself, if that was me, I wouldn't feel purposeful. 
I wouldn't understand the true impact that I would be making as a teacher. Because being a teacher, whether you like it or not, you are you are a community member. You are a parent sometimes, their second home. Sometimes you are their first home. You are the place where they eat, sometimes sleep. You are the place where you are the place where they sometimes feel like this is the only place where they can be their full, authentic, real self, whether for good or bad, whether for disruption or not. And that matters. Like if it, like I said before, if that if I didn't have a teacher that was so open and willing to let me be and say exactly what it was on my mind and grow into the person I am today, I, I wouldn't be able to say that I would have been happy with who I am and thinking of that. I would have been doing exactly what I I would have been doing exactly what I thought was supposed to be done rather than speaking up for what I truly believed was correct. And so I would say first off, like ask yourself, like, why are you teaching? I think for me, like defining it, teaching is very grounded in, we want to do more than survive at Bettina Love. It's very grounded in abolitionist teaching. It's very grounded in life-giving education. It's really grounded in finding ways and modes to speak back to power. And after you found or have decided to understand like what your why is, be able to remember and realize that these kids are, yes, students, but they're kids. <laughs> They're, they're 14, they're 15, 16, 17, 18. And I'm not that far to age, but I know that as I get older, I might find myself disconnected to understanding what that mindset or what growing up in that age was like. And growing up at that age is not easy. I've shared that I had, I chose to move schools because of being queer and because people were not accepting of that. And that's a big deal for me at that time that have influenced and shaped the way I see the world now. And so these kids are going through their own battles, their own successes, their own struggles. You, you're a specific person in a time of their life, in a specific time in history. For them, they'll look back on and remember who you were for them, how you were for them, and how you helped them see the world. And I think teachers, it's a very magical role to have. It's a very beautiful role to have. And if you study any history from any communities, people die for education. The, the s- people struggle for it. People ban education because it's so powerful. Once you understand that things don't have to be the way they are, and once you learn to think for yourself or, or take the red pill, like my teacher told me, um, the world becomes, becomes almost like a canvas that you're willing to make whatever you want rather than someone doing the painting for you. And so first understand what your why is and then also understand, well, they're also kids and kids also should be able to experience joy, mentorship, and also naivety. They should be able to enjoy what it means to be a child because people grow up way too fast now and we're forcing them to, especially black and brown kids. They should be able to experience what it means to be a kid. You know, I really want to thank you, Marco, for for sharing your story um, and, and being here today. Thank you for allowing me to share. I think it's been in my mind for a while and it feels like these moments that I'm allowed to share what has happened is releasing me from the guilt and the shame that I felt or that was imposed on me. So thank you. I, I'm feeling like I can slowly like let this go and truly move forward with my life without having let this kind of loom over me. So thank you, Eduardo. 
Thank you again for listening to this episode of the State of Public Education. If you enjoyed it, please remember to review it and share it with others who might be interested in this podcast. If you'd like to be interviewed or would like to recommend somebody, please feel free to reach out to me at thestateofpubliceducation at gmail.com. Thank you and take care.